this, this session uh, deals really with um, shame as a, a measure used by public bodies to, to affect sort of health behavior. So our first um, speaker is uh, Dr. Paul Snelling, uh, whose background is in nursing, though I think it's a long time since you've seen an actual patient. Um, and his PhD is in, well, you can remember, bioethics and medical jurisprudence. He currently works as a principal lecturer in the Institute of Health and Society at the University of Worcester. And he's speaking on shame as a public health intervention. Um, great, thank you, um, Barry and Luna, for the invitation to come and talk uh, about shame as a public health intervention. It's very complex, and I've had to employ the editor's razor. Um, I fear that covering so much ground uh, may lead to a superficial analysis. It's a whistle-stop tour, really, I'm, I'm giving you today. Um, I'm going to say a few things about terminology and offer some examples of what some people think is as a good use of shame, not only in the health field. Um, and then I'm going to discuss a, a, a recent paper by uh, Daniel Callahan, which might promote shaming and stigma, and you'll see what I mean, um, in obesity and use this to suggest a, a model, a simple model of, of shaming, and, uh, used by shaming and stigmatising apologists. Um, and then I'm going to offer some fairly standard objections and finally offer some um, observations about the difference between shame and guilt and suggest some areas where it might be acceptable to use the, uh, these social emotions. So you can see that's quite a lot to get through. Um, the first point I want to make is to question the extent to which philosophical and psychological discussion can, does, or should influence the sorts of issues that we're here to discuss related to public health. Uh, we do need to distinguish between shame and being publicly shamed, which often amounts to being blamed, uh, being ashamed, feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, humiliated, embarrassed. Um, but there's conceptual and empirical confusion about these things. So, for example, the concept of being publicly shamed, uh, blamed, uh, can be another name for being humiliated in some, in some circumstances. Uh, and you can be ashamed, or rather say that you're ashamed, or you feel ashamed when others might define your feeling uh, as guilt. And we're going to come back to that later on. So, so res research has distinguished between shame and guilt. Most people find it difficult to articulate the difference between them when asked. So, so the words I'm going to use, and we've all been using a caring definition, but not too much. Um, the decisive political debates um, which I'm going to be mentioning in passing about public health, don't always use precise definition. Uh, and if academics insist upon it in this and other spheres, we're not always thanked. So, so it's quite tricky. Um, and I've raised, you'll notice, raised some questions, but I haven't answered them. Um, but let's not forget that in public health debates, um, academic, political, public debates, policy is ultimately decided by politicians who work to their own standards of shall we say, familiarity with argumentation. And public health policies ultimately derive their legitimacy from voters, or, or rather certain sections of voters, rather than academics or healthcare professionals. Uh, and that influences the level and language of the debate. So there is conceptual confusion. And to illustrate my point, um, Richard Wolheim argues that shame is associated with being observed, uh, doing things that no sane person is ashamed of, are doing in private, e.g. Uh, urinating or passing wind, as he says. 
Um, the eminent philosopher Martin Nussbaum, however, and this is a quotation, states that one may be embarrassed by farting in public, even if one thinks farting perfectly normal and even enjoyable. That's, uh, her, uh, that's a quotation from her book. <coughs> and more seriously, so, so one's calling it shame, one's one embarrassment. And more seriously, a focus group of people with irritable bowel syndrome um, reported that several reported feelings of shame, embarrassment, and degradation, particularly when experiencing symptoms. Um, and a common thing there was that these individuals perceived social stigma. So what I'm, I think I'm really saying here is, is that I'm going to be talking about shame. But some people in the audience might say, well, actually, you're not talking about shame. You're talking about something else completely different. I, I do think that uh, is a problem for maybe an, an, another day. So um, shame, um, public shame, and even stigma seems like a good idea um, to some people some of the time. I'm going to give you three examples. There's the first one. Um, our Prime Minister says runaway dad should be shamed uh, and later on these were stigmatised, which I had some clickers to, to, so you could vote on whether you ag agree with this sort of thing or not. <laughs> uh, that's what he said. And it's interesting because there's been policy development uh, to enforce payment, but there's also a separate attempt and a deliberate attempt to stigmatise uh, in addition to that. Um, here's another form of shaming, blaming that people seem to, uh, seem to enjoy. Um, this is, um, uh, this is the shaming that's, that's come up independent of government uh, and sprung up in the, in the morally loaded and disinhibited environment of social media. So, so there's um, stuff about folk who go around shooting uh, animals. Uh, it seems to me to be more directed at women shooters, um, but maybe because that threatens a, a normative stereotype. But this post alone had over 127,000 shares. And, and the dentist in America who shot Cecil the Lion had to go into hiding. Um, this week it's been announced he won't face charges. So, so that's, a, a, that's um, an area of shaming. And then last, I don't know if this hit the headlines over here. Um, this is the um, public blaming or attempt to shame the chief executive of a pharmaceutical company in the States who bought the rights um, to a drug for treating parasitic infection and then raised the price from... Thirteen to $750. Did, you, did this hit the headlines over here? Yeah. He gamely defended his action like this. Um, there's a company selling an Aston Martin at the price of a bicycle. And our company bought that um, bicycle. And we charged Toyota prices. I don't think that should be a crime. Well, it isn't a crime. Um, but he was still um, publicly shamed. He gave in to public shaming or blame him, said he was going to reduce the price. Uh, I checked on Monday and he hadn't. Um, but he doesn't seem ashamed. He's, he's shameless. So public shaming uh, can go with shamelessness. So in 2013, Daniel Callahan published a short paper um, uh, in the respective bioethics journal Hastings Centre report uh, proposing an edgier strategy for the elusive epidemic of obesity, including that social pressure uh, be brought on to the overweight. Uh, it's worth quoting uh, at some length what he said, and I didn't put this on a slide, so I'm going to read it out. This is from Callahan's paper. When I was first drawn to think about obesity, I could not help thinking about the success of the anti-smoking campaign of recent decades. As a smoker, I was first criticised for my nasty habit, and eventually, along with all the others, sent outside to smoke, and my cigarette taxes were constantly raised. 
Uh, the force of being shamed and beat upon socially was as persuasive for me to stop smoking as the threats to my health. So the key features of shame and stigma uh, were articulated uh, and, and recognising uh, the potential harms, he proposed what he called stigmatisation light as a, as a nod to, to the, the criticism that I thought he might anticipate. Um, he, he suggested finding ways to induce people who are overweight or obese to put some uncomfortable questions to themselves, including these questions. So if you're overweight, are you pleased with the way you look? Are you pleased when your children are called fatty? And fair or not, he said, uh, which I think is uh, important, do you know that many people look down upon those excessively overweight? So the paper provoked a number of responses, and in answering them, it turned out that he hadn't meant to stigmatise the obese at all. He'd made a proofreading error, uh, what he called a, a dumb error in, in his, his uh, response. Uh, the questions he suggested were to be directed at those not yet obese, or just a little overweight. And as I read it, I thought, he's, he's talking to me. <laughs> he's talking to me, uh, to, induce them, uh, to induce me even to stay that way. So against the accusation that his proposal was mean-spirited, he wanted to be very clear. He said this, let me say flatly, I do not favour stigmatising the overweight or obese and surely not discriminating against them. He said he'd left some sentences in his paper that he'd intended to remove, but we don't know which ones. <laughs> he, he did say this. This is in his first paper, not his apology. Well, it wasn't an apology, actually, it was a correction. <coughs> it would be imperative first to persuade them that they ought to want a good diet and exercise for themselves and for their neighbour, and second, that excessive weight and outright obesity are not socially acceptable anymore. So that seems to me to be an obvious uh, attempt to shame people. Um, and he describes shame there, and he appears to want to use the power of shame to change behaviour and yet avoid, or say he avoids, the stigma that often accompanies it. So based in part on Callahan's paper, and there are a few others in the literature to um, uh, defend this practice and even promote it, here's a suggestion of how, um, a very simple suggestion of how public health policies use shame, shame and stigma. So in this very simple model, a range of different policies um, types contribute to denormalisation of the thing that they're presented against in different ways, and since shame and stigma are essentially social entities, other influences also contribute, probably, as we've already heard, we talked about societal influences, I think they're, they're probably the biggest influence. So, the, so these policies are tapping into it. So in the UK, for example, we've had quite a debate, so the, I'll talk about the other societal um, ways presented in society rather than the official policy. And we've had quite a debate in the UK about what size dress shop mannequins should be. I'm saying that as if I know what that means. Uh, one, one store used size 16. Um, again, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I've, I've seen the picture. Um, the equality minister in the UK uh, was present at the launch, uh, and she applauded the move for increasing inclusivity. Um, but the chief medical officer said she was worried that it would normalise obesity. Um, and all that Debenhams wanted to do, of course, was sell more dresses. Um, <laughs> Here is a, a large twin study, this is going back a few years ago, which found that heritability for children uh, for obesity was 77%. was factually reported on the BBC, but met with this response in the Sunday Times, which uh, is a fairly influential broadsheet on, on Sunday, and this 
this, these are the headlines. That, and that, was, that was the year before, but Indy Night, this is what happened on the following Sunday. Those were the headlines, and this is the text for Indy Night. So I hate to blithely dismiss, I, I know I shouldn't read it out, because you can read it, but I love it, so I'm going to read it out, because it's just... It, <coughs> I hate to blithely dismiss a whole swathe of scientific findings, but I don't believe a word of this. Fat Jean my foot, funny how it seems to manifest itself only in the prosperous, cake-guzzling, carbon, sugar-laden West. Where are the obese Sudanese toddlers, the porky Ethiopians? You can choose to make sacrifices or choose to be lazy and remain fat. And if you choose to be lazy and remain fat, then fair enough, but accept it's your own doing and take responsibility for it. Fatness is a personal choice, uh, one that can't be blamed on anyone or anything other than our own greedy behaviour. I hate it when people sit on the fence and they don't say, <laughs> what, they <laughs> they don't say what, they, what, what they mean. So a stereotype is created uh, or emerges, and it's against this that individuals compare themselves, creating shame and potentially stigma. This is also another example um, of what I mentioned at the beginning about star standards of argumentation. And Indian Knight has lost a lot of weight herself, and, uh, and by, by blaming others, I think she's inviting praise for herself. And uh, she's also got a lot of diet books to sell, so um, that's. So Callahan's claim here then to be serious again, is that shame and stigma change behaviour because people will want to avoid them. <clears throat> First for the obese, because by changing behaviour and making the right choices, they can rid themselves of the stigma eventually. And secondly, for the not yet obese, me, uh, because people uh, can see the social results of stigma. In other words, what awaits them if they fail to control their weight? And this is emphasised in Callahan's questions. Um, providing one reason why his claim that he never meant to stigmatise um, the obese doesn't really ring true, for me anyway. It's the whole point is they have to be stigmatised, otherwise people like me wouldn't know what it is we were trying to avoid. Perhaps the most telling point in this um, explanatory scheme is the thing that shame and stigma are supposed to achieve is behaviour change. So despite the well-known association between a whole host of social and environmental factors which lead to obesity and other health-threatening behaviour, public health policy persists in its emphasis on personal responsibility for health. Uh, these wider determinants of health and behaviour are often referred to uh, in policy documents, but uh, as Carter and colleagues found, having noted them, um, uh, they looked at cancer policies uh, worldwide. These policies then went on to direct action principally uh, on behaviour change without, uh, without addressing the, the, the other factors. So my suggestion is, is that we could evaluate individual policies, public health policies, comments by, by ministers, and claim that they are designed to shame or stigmatise people. But perhaps it's more fruitful to say instead that the, the collection of policies uh, aim to create or exploit an environment in which people are encouraged to compare themselves to an ideal norm and that this is driven by an overall philosophy which overemphasizes the ability, the desirability and the effect of getting people to change their ways. Um, so the policies can be uh, of many types, uh, but three of interest, uh, just to mention briefly, one is coercion of, of various types, for example through taxation, which can um, be addressed or, or find most difficult to people who are already disadvantaged for, for other reasons. 
Um, there's health promotion and education, which I know um, Becky's going to be talking about in more detail. Um, and finally, um, something for us all to question, or many of us in this room, is the behaviour and attitude of health professionals. Um, so codes of conduct clearly require treating people with respect and without discrimination. Um, although I, I thought that slightly ambiguous in the Irish Medical Code when I, I looked at it last night. That's just a, a, whole, a whole half hour on codes. Um, but there are lots of reports, um, uh, first of all hospitals, in, uh, this happens in the UK, who, who refuse to treat people unless they lose weight. And that's always defended on forward-looking considerations rather than blame, but, but it's still done. Um, but there's also a lot of research which demonstrates negative attitudes to healthcare professionals, uh, sorry, uh, of healthcare professionals to groups of people, uh, including those with lung cancer, HIV, and those who have self-harmed. Uh, and you only have to go um, to the accident department on a Friday night uh, to find some of those things. So that's the claim then. And a number of obje objections can be made um, to um, the claim. First, that the success claim for the aggressive denormalisation of tobacco is wrongly generalised to other public health <coughs> problems. And this is a claim explicitly <coughs> made by Callaghan in, in respect of obesity and in respect of himself. <coughs> There's a couple of problems with this. Um, First, it's easier, I think, to justify attacking smoking and stigmatising smokers on other regarding grounds, and, and come back to this later, as opposed to self-regarding grounds. So legislation banning smoking in public enclosed spaces, which had the effect of visibly separating smokers, uh, was defended um, on other regarding, uh, for other regarding reasons. Um, Callahan tried to do this for obesity. He said um, they should want a good diet for, and exercise for themselves and for their neighbour. Um, but other regarding arguments, even well developed, which they weren't, but in fairness, it was a comment article. It was only a comment article, I mean, in fairness to him. These arguments are much weaker in respect to behaviour which doesn't cause direct harm to bystanders. Secondly, um, smoking stigma can be removed by giving up which of course is what's desired and in some cases I'm probably one of these myself uh, a long time ago you can go from being a smoker to anti-smoker in a couple of days um, i.e. from shame to pride um, but of course you can't do that if you're obese so I think that the, the generalisation from the claim success of the stigmatisation of smoking is just is wrong it's, a, it's not morally it's an error um, a second line uh, uh, of objections is that inducing shame and the stigma that sometimes follows undermines dignity and autonomy. So stigma tends to reduce people to their stigmatising feature and fails to respect them as a person. So the evolutionary purpose for shame is to get people to conform, which is the opposite of respecting their autonomous choice, which is lauded as the <coughs> predominant bioethical principle. This, I think, is a fundamental, te fundamental tension in professional healthcare, which states that it values autonomous decision, but then does a good job sometimes to, to undermine it. And an example of this is some health promotion material, uh, which gives insufficient information to enable risk to be calculated, and so I can make a choice, because it gives relative rather than absolute risks. I just simply could not find the information that I wanted to know about whether or not it was okay for me to drink half a bottle of wine at night. 
it's not there. It just tells me that I'm twice as likely to get. And then a whole host of, of, of nasty things. So under the guise of information giving, uh, for choice, we're pushed towards the right answer. But I do think uh, the autonomy objection is weakening of late under the developing area uh, of research and policy following Thaler and Sunstein's important book, Nudge, uh, and the social psychology of decision-making. Um, the argument for the supremacy of personal autonomous choice is undermined somewhat by studies that show not only that we choose unwisely uh, against what the government and our doctors tell us, but also that we choose unwisely when measured against what we say we want. We're inconsistent in our desires and our choices. Um, this empirical uh, view of restricted autonomy is offered as justification for uh, a series of nudging measures uh, labelled paternalism, uh, libertarian paternalism, to suggest that it's not really autonomy threatening. Um, but research on our lack of ability to make decisions uh, has also led to stronger claims, for example, arguing with patients about their choices, seeking to persuade them, and as going as far as downright coercive paternalism. So the third objection, or set of objections, is related to the consequences of shaming and stigmatising policies. This seems especially important since public health ethics is essentially a utilitarian enterprise. Uh, the important objection is, is that these policies don't work um, all the time. The claim is they have worked for smoking, but others don't work. So one of the responses to Callaghan's paper was pithily entitled, If Stigma Reduced Obesity, There'd Be No Fat People. And the consensus seems to be that weight stigma doesn't work and can actually make things worse. That is, stigmatised people can eat more. And some are deterred from seeking help for their conditional behaviour. And we see this dilemma in other uh, groups. For example, smoking in pregnancy, which is heavily stigmatised. A further objection about the utilitarian justification for stigmatising policies is the question of what is being maximised. What tends to be maximised um, is health, measured as objectively as possible. Um, so in interviews last year, Dame Sally Davis, England's Chief Medical Officer, said this, I want to be happy, but I need them to think about what their weight is and whether they're unhealthy. Um, and the Chief Medical Officer represents two dominant groups, uh, the medical profession and the government, who claim in policy department documents that they consider health and wellbeing together but are actually interested, I think, in, in a narrow biomedical model of health. Uh, and this is what policy aims to maximise. People's own views about what their well-being consists of um, might be different. For example, in, this, in an Australian study uh, of the eating and drinking habits of young people found this. Um, guidelines invite us to manage our body in an idealised, individualised world where lifestyle change is straightforward. Um, to read citizens do actively manage their food uh, and alcohol consumption in an effort to be healthy, but they do so from a context where social well-being is the primary aim. So they've basically just got different versions of what it is, is to be healthy. But um, the shaming uh, environment uh, might benefit some. This is another interesting story in the UK. A size 18 runner was out for a run recently when a man in a van abused her by making sarcastic comments and singing a song about her size. Uh, the following day she penned an open letter to him on Facebook and it went viral, leading to a piece about her in a running magazine. The link I've given to the Daily Mail article and it's instructed to read the comments underneath if you can bear to read the Daily Mail article. 
Um, I've given you uh, one comment here, which says is that hopefully with running, she will uh, she will look fit and healthy. Linking back to what we've already heard about, it's about her look. The article gives an inspirational story about how shame can motivate and uh, stigma be overcome through personal fortitude. But the way that her actions are presented tends to reinforce the narrative of personal responsibility. Yes, it is a critique of the stigmatising attitude of the van driver by attempting to shame him, incidentally. Um, but it also implies that she can do this, so you, so you can. Not only can, you can, you should. She's defeated shame and stigma on her own, and great for her, uh, but many can't. In this case, we have a sort of sacrifice whereby the benefit to the runner in being motivated to take personal responsibility, if that's what it is, is set against the harm caused to others who, for a variety of reasons, are unable or unwilling to do what they are told they, wish they should do. Uh, and as a consequence, they remain ashamed and stigmatised. So much for the objections to these public health policies. Um, I want to conclude by suggesting some areas where inducing guilt might be more acceptable. And to do this first, some brief mention of the difference is required, although I do remind you of my earlier suggestions about the language and the difficulties of definition and conceptual clarity. So shame and guilt share the features that they are negative and self-conscious, and they can apply to similar events. I'd say that guilt is more likely than shame, where there's agreement that a moral transgression has occurred. Shame and stigma can result from non-moral entities, um, or rather what other people regard as moral. Guilt is considered less distressing. It focus on, focuses on a bad act rather than being a bad person. It's more likely triggered by other regarding considerations, focusing on the harm and actions done to other people, and resulting in a, uh, a wish to apologise and, and put things right. Finally, though this is contested, um, uh, Tangley and Deering say there's little evidence for it. Shame is more of a public emotion, where, uh, whereas guilt can be retained as a, as a private response to perceived wrongdoing. So if these distinctions can be made, and I'm not saying that there's clear light between them, or that they're that distinct, um, can public health interventions appeal to a sense of guilt rather than shame? Well, here's a couple of places where they might be able to. Um, generally, uh, blood and organ donation policies present their moral status differently, so that in advertising films, anyway, blood donation is presented as super irrigatory. You're a hero, and organ donation, that is being on the organ donation register, is obligatory. So if you present something as a moral obligation, you're inviting critique. Um, if people don't agree or guilt if they do, and they haven't signed up. So in a clever TV advert uh, in the UK, a, a young man gradually develops the physical signs and the medical paraphernalia of someone needing a heart transplant, and the commentary says this. I was going to show you the video that I run out of time. It's, uh, the I've given you the links if the, if the PowerPoints are going to be available. Nearly all of us would take an organ, but most of us put off registering as a donor. If you believe in organ donation, donation, prove it. So it's clearly designed to induce guilt in those who haven't registered. A direct appeal to avoid the moral wrong of free riding. Personally, I think that's fair enough, but in this case free riding is wrong and organ donation for most is uh, obligatory. Um, if you do click on the link, you'll see a number of comments which illustrate that some don't agree. So these are the comments under the video on YouTube. I have cut and pasted them in case you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> 
So a couple of these are the first three. I haven't searched for these. These are these are common. So there's some objection that they should be made to feel guilt, and then someone saying, "Look, look this is how it is." Might the advert stigmatise? Well, it shouldn't because the uh, choice is hidden. Uh, would it cause shame and guilt? Well, maybe, but as the comments show, I'd say it's not unjust. If you would accept an organ and you're not on the register, you should feel guilty because you're doing a bad thing, or rather you're not doing a good thing. Will it increase organ donation? Well, I don't know, but that's probably the primary concern. Second example, I'll, I'll be very brief here, is um, whether direct appeals to other regarding harms in respect of health-threatening behaviour. So I don't mean the cost of treatment argument, which is trotted out against a range of behaviours and is often suspect. So you can't read a newspaper article about obesity without someone telling you it's cost so many billions of pounds. You just can't, the two just go together. Um, I mean that an individual smoking is morally wrong to the extent that it harms others. So it's banned in pubs and also in cars carrying children because of the direct harms the second-hand smoke cause. But these adverts, let me show you just a couple briefly, extend Mill's harm principle to indirect harms, recognising that our lives are entwined with others, uh, and these others have, to various extents, genuine interest in our health and well-being. So in Australia, a small boy is left alone at the top of an escalator in a train station, and as his tears start flowing, the commentator asks, uh, is this, if, if this is how your child feels after losing you for a minute, just imagine if they lost you for life. And in England, uh, an older boy on a fishing trip with his dad tells us what he isn't worried about, but then what he is worried about. He says, I'm worried about dad smoking. I'm worried that my dad will die. I think that these are adverts are more acceptable than genuinely stigmatising smokers because they do speak to, in my view, a genuine reason why smoking might be wrong. I say might be wrong for some people. So, will they contribute to guilt, shame or stigma? Well, they're clearly designed to, but the concluding message of this presentation is that inducing guilt might be acceptable sometimes. But to say that all forms of guilt, shame and the associated stigma, which might be unintended, uh, are unacceptable in public health terms, would be to say that there's no moral element to our health-affecting behaviour at all. Um, Martha Nussbaum defended an exhortation to feel shame by saying that the norms that were being promoted in the case that she defended were morally good norms. <coughs> and this is the €64,000 consideration. Uh, amongst the reasons why public health will continue to shame and stigmatise is that those doing it genuinely believe that there's a moral obligation to look after your health. Largely, I don't share this view, and that's why my default position with tentative exceptions is against shame and stigma as public health interventions. Uh, but I'm happy to leave more detailed exploration to that to Becky. Um, I've encroached <laughs> on your time, I apologise. Thank you.